Whenever there are major tragedies that occur, like shootings and things, there's a significant loss of life. We always see the atheists quickly rising up at these times, lamenting the tragedies, but then also making a point, using whatever editorials they may have, about what a relief it is for them to be spared of having to try to explain God at a time like this. We can use various examples. But that's generally a tone we hear when tragedies and even natural catastrophes happen. The relief of not having to explain how a loving God could let something like this ever happen. Obviously, there's a variation on the question, if there is a God, well, why is there evil? And the focus by the atheists on this relief of being spared is something of note, though. The argument against religion and faith, especially in our modern world, our society, which is getting more anti-religious by the day. The argument against religion and faith is that faith is a cop-out. It's a substitute for not really wanting to think and put the effort into thinking and reasoning things out in a proper way. And so when atheists will express the relief they have about not having to explain God in the, in the wake of tragedies, they're essentially saying this. They're saying that by forgetting the God question, more attention and devotion is given to the human issue, the human side of things. Because lots of time will get wasted thinking about God and since he does not exist, and things like this prove it, we can get on to the more important issues of relieving the suffering before us. Never any satisfactory answers, and all evil and tragedy makes the answers seem even more elusive. Anything that might get positive that God may exist, all this evil and tragedy, it just makes his answers seem even more impotent or inane. But a question comes to the surface. Could one, really, could one really be content, if we want to be honest with ourselves, could one really be content with the way the world is right now and where it's going? If there was no God, really, don't you think we would have done a better job has not our modern age proved that what a great job man has done when he casts God off? Is not the attempt to liberalize everything and permit everything not only an effort to replace God, but also, shall we say, an effort to cope 
with life without him. Since there's no God, it would be reasoned, then I have to find my happiness and my satiation in things here. And so it's a coping mechanism. Everything must be valid. Everything must be permitted. So I can feed my senses as much as I want because I'm going to die one day. And it's all over. And so this radical push from our governments across the world to liberalize and radicalize everything is just simply a coping mechanism because God is no longer part of the equation any longer. So really, what is this relief, then, that the atheists speak of, about not having to deal with the God question in the face of tragedies? Really, what is there to boast about? There is a mystery, of course, that we're dealing with here. A mystery about sin and a mystery about evil. And yes, there is something elusive about these things. And we're also, by the way, ones for shifting responsibility. You know, that little saying, any excuse will do. People are always looking out for the smallest excuse to not do what they ought. What's there to boast about? There's a mystery. But before we look at the mystery of evil in the world and around us, it needs to be realized that we are just as much a mystery to ourselves. And the answers that we get for this mystery are just as elusive as the mystery about evil and sin. It really is no different. If the, mystery, if the mystery of God and evil is thrown off, then there actually is really no escaping the mystery of ourselves. Look how frustrated we are. How frustrated we get with ourselves. But we're not better than we, why we are not better than we are. How frustrated we get. We have a certain sense, I should be better than this. Even just dispensing for a moment with grace and God, we all have a certain sense, I should be better than I am. Why do certain things seem so hard? Why can I shake certain things off? Why do I have a proclivity to certain things that are not good? And as society once again tries to cope, they try to make things that are bad into good so we can feel good about ourselves. We have a desire for perfection, yet we're so imperfect. We have a desire for eternity, yet we're so mortal. We have a capacity for greatness, yet we're so pathetically weak at times. These mysteries, though, good and evil, the mystery of ourselves, these are all God's lifelines, though. For if we throw them off and willfully deny him, the reality of these mysteries that constantly stand before us can actually give us a way back if we quit running. God constantly feeds us actual graces for this reason. He constantly is calling souls back to him, constantly calling souls to him for conversion. It never stops. 
How he goes about it is, once again, perhaps sometimes another mystery. But nonetheless, it never stops. It's constantly active, constantly present. But as God knows and understands all mysteries, so the way he responds to them gives us a lot of insight. But we have to be docile for this. It is not God's way of explaining everything to us. A lot of things, if God was to do that, for the sake of argument, let's say God tried to explain the mystery of evil to us, or the mystery of the Trinity, or any of the beautiful mysteries that we believe in. Let's say God tried to do that. It would simply go well over our heads. Look at the apostles. Christ oftentimes tells them, there's much more to tell you, but you can't bear it right now. They didn't, have enough, they didn't have enough capacity at the moment to hear what God Christ was going to say. But he says, the Holy Ghost, the, Pater, the Paraclete, will teach you all things. But even that, there's still mysteries. It's like trying to teach a cal- calculus to a second grader. They look like deer in headlights. Well, it's trying to teach calculus to a 30-year-old. It's probably the same effect anyway, too. But the fact is, nonetheless... You can get a second grader to help make them realize it's math, but even with a precise, detailed explanation of how you arrive at this answer, everything, all steps neatly demonstrated, the second grader will look, will still look, that, look at it and have absolutely no idea what any of it means. They just trust that you got the right answer. Essentially, these are the, this is what the mysteries of our faith are about. If God was to try to give us a line-by-line explanation of how he is triune, or the mystery of good and evil, the mystery of sin, the mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of the Eucharist, it would be far beyond our ability to comprehend. The song of the angels over the manger on Christmas morning, where they sing peace to men of goodwill, sets the conditions for us if we have any hope of figuring things out in this life. And by figuring things out, I don't mean a complete solution, but having a satisfactory solution that exceeds any other explanation that can be offered. Goodwill presumes the desire to endure God's frustrations of us and to look at his solutions rather than critiquing his solution. Is not sin or evil a manifestation of our frustration with God? Isn't it pretty much that's the way it is? When we sin, isn't it just simply a frustration we have with God? We're not getting our way. We want something, we rebel. God says no, we say yes. Aren't we frustrated with that? Any sin, whether grave or venial, same thing. It's a frustration involved. Yes, we're weak. Is it not a result of of a frustrated relationship we have? Let us consider then a certain episode in the Passion of our Lord that will shed a great deal of light on us. Now keep in mind, what Christ teaches by by his word in his public life, his Passion teaches us how to not only endure, but to consent to it. Christ's preaching is the sowing of the seed, whereas the passion is the actual rooting of that seed. 
And the passion is the mystery of good colliding with the mystery of evil. That's the result. That's what the passion is, dear ladies. It's the worst that man has to offer, colliding with the best that God has to offer. And the result is the passion. It's the cross. It's the suffering of our Savior. The worst of man, the best of God, colliding head-on at high speed. It's not a pretty picture. Evil is out for the quick and cheap win, remember. Evil is always out for appearances. Good is always out for the overall victory. And so what our Lord is about to endure here gives us a great deal of insight, of course, to those of goodwill. So when Christ stands before Caiaphas, We are given to see how certain kinds of answers are not meant for this life. Now remember, our Lord gets arrested outside Gethsemane. The apostles flee. He's bound up and dragged over to see Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was Annas, who had been the high priest for a while and had succeeded in making sure that his family stayed on that line very corrupt individual who had lost all faith and belief in God. Christ stands before Annas for, for a few minutes, doesn't really answer him much, has nothing to say. Annas has no authority, except for one answer Christ gives. And for that, he's, Christ is struck hard across the face, practically knocked down. And Annas, remember, asks Christ about his teaching. And Christ says, I've preached publicly. Go ask the people I preach to. I've hidden nothing. For that, he gets knocked down. And Annas, frustrated by this, and seeing he's not going to get anywhere, sends him off to Caiaphas, who is the legitimate high priest, who possesses the authority as high priest. But as I said, what happens now between our Lord and Caiaphas during this trial shows us that answer, there are certain answers, certain kinds of answers are not going to be meant for this life, but meant for the next. Now, the trial before Caiaphas was illegal. It was a mock trial. You don't have trials at night. All the laws and rules were thrown out. It's like our president. We have to pray for of course, every day. All the rules and laws get thrown out. And so Bacchus has to maintain some sort of legalistic presence and appearance to make this look legitimate. It's the mock trial. The, the verdict was already decided. How do we get Christ crucified? That was the big thing. How do we get from A to B? So in this trial, witness, we witness the extent of what man will do then to establish a life without God. Goodness itself standing in the midst of all this evil. There's Christ, and there's everyone around him, out to get him. Christ completely composed, not shuddering at all, 
which perhaps in some way escalated the tension in that room. He did the same thing with Pilate, which kept Pilate constantly on edge because Pilate never witnessed someone like this with a threat of execution and crucifixion. Christ was completely composed and always took control of the conversation. Pilate was mesmerized by this, but he was too weak to make the right decisions. So false witnesses are brought forward, many of them, all having their gripe about what God has to say. All not willing, though, to confront the mystery in themselves. Many witnesses come forward. Contradiction follows upon contradiction. This man said this, this man said that. They get in all their facts confused. They're twisting words. They can't get any harmony whatsoever. Nothing is resolving. Matter of fact, it, the situation is getting more, for, more and more embarrassing for Caiaphas. All these witnesses, whether they were paid off or whatever, who knows, come and stand up, they say these things, they claim Christ said this, they claim Christ said that, but as it says in Scripture, they could not agree. What a pathetic showing. But that is the language of evil. It's all these lies, all these misrepresentations, venting its frustration with goodness and truth, because with goodness there is always coherency and harmony, which in the end will withstand all contradictions. Exactly what Christ does. So evil has to drown out the truth then. Isn't that our modern world? Everywhere we go, there's noise. Everywhere. People have these things in their ears. Everywhere you go, there's music playing. I don't mind a good song, don't get me wrong. But everywhere we go, there is constant distraction, sense, overload, advertisements everywhere trying to get us to drown out or forget about the fact that we have an eternity. It's our modern world. And as we know, the acceleration has increased, even in the last ten years. Evil is all about the moment, remember, and making that moment a seeming eternity. That's what it's about. That's what sin is, in a certain sense. I'm trying to stuff this tangible and, and, and temporal thing, this transitional good, into the space of eternity. That's what sin is. And try to stick this momentary pleasure, this momentary un unlawful thing, whatever it is, into, a, into eternity. That's what I'm trying to do. Evil's all about the moment, and making that moment feel or seem like an eternity. It gathers evidence fast. It jumps to conclusions. It acts as both judge and jury in order to pass its prejudiced verdict that everything is fine, that, the old, that what was good, what was bad, is actually good. What was false is actually true. And this trial before Caiaphas of our Lord exposes that entire way of acting. 
Now, why evil is this way is not all that important. All we need to know that that is how it is. That's how it works. Even look at, consider the first sin of our paradise. Lucifer took a truth, put it into a form of a question to, in, to, in, to uh, inject doubt, and then got Eve to look at something, got Eve's perspective on something to change, so that she would end up sinning. That's what evil is. And our Lord stands there while all these things are being thrown his way, stands there completely quiet and composed, listening as his words, all of his beautiful words, all of his deeds, all of his miracles are twisted around so as to condemn him. This is the man that cannot be accused of sin. So everything that he said, all his beautiful words and deeds, all his commands, the commandments, his instructions, our Lord stands there listening to them get all completely twisted around, mocked, made fun of. Slander of all kind is poured out his way. Half lies, interpreting his good deeds in false ways, accusing him of witchcraft, of having a devil. It's all pouring out fast and furious right now as he simply stands there and listens. There's God. Christ himself, the Word incarnate, standing there, sustaining it all, absorbing it all, and saying nothing. Not one word. Not even complaining. It's a lesson in itself. Why? Because there's nothing to say to this. What's our Lord going to say to it? What does it prove? By him standing there. We first must understand that Christ is God. End of story. That's a game changer. Take that out of the equation and the ship loses its rudder and is doomed. Is Christ God or not? I do not care what the Muslims say because they say he is not. I say he is. We have a big problem now, you know. We're in disagreement or whoever, take your pick. Is Christ God or not? Because if he's God, that means we have to listen to everything he says. If he's not, that means he's a liar. There's no two ways about it. For those of goodwill, then, we are forced to look at the mystery of ourselves, that interior contradiction we all must do daily battle with the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Why do I do what I know I ought not to? 
For those of goodwill, we are forced then to look at the mystery of ourselves against the backdrop of Christ's passion. Because that's God standing there. Not just some good man who ended up on the wrong side of the fence or got the short end of the stick. At this trial, then, evil is found to be looking for its justification. So anything man is capable of doing, either against God, against himself, against his neighbor, is clamoring for validation at this trial. That's what's happening right now. Anything man can do in the depths of his own iniquity is clamoring for validation right now. And the more emboldened it gets, the more it wants God and Christ, who's God, out of the way. That's what's happening right now in that trial. The contradictions are of little matter, though, and Christ's silence in the midst of this gives the appearance of victory. It seems to be going on right now. Does God not seem to be silent at times? A lot of times? He's letting everyone get everything out. Say it again, Sam. Play it again, Sam, I should say. He stands there, waiting for us to say, Are you finished yet? Everyone in that room, in that trial, wanted the exact same thing. They wanted our Lord out of the way. They wanted him dead, buried, forgotten, gone. Never a memory that someone like this ever existed, ever said anything. That was the purpose. So they could have definitive permission to do whatever they wanted. For the rest of us, this trial of Christ places us as, as both the perpetrators of evil, but also as its victims, and leaves us then to consider the solution God then proposes. But this only brings relief to those of goodwill. If you're not of goodwill, you're never going to buy it. You're never going to understand it. It'll be too easy to make excuses and to find a cop-out, which personally I find pathetic, because the real evidence is being ignored. The contradictions in that room went ignored. Christ is silent as his words and deeds get torn to shreds. Christ is silent as he gets accused of all sorts of evil, of how much better the world would be without him there. He stands there silently. In so doing, our Lord teaches two things, very hard lessons that we have to embrace which require a great deal of faith, a great deal of commitment and confidence, 
as well as trust, so as to establish the hope that we need in God's ultimate victory and our own salvation, which was obtained for us upon the cross. The first of these lessons is that there are wounds that we bear which can be healed, but only by time, if no other way. That's the first lesson. There's no quick, immediate, clean answer. Only time, our our perseverance in God's grace, our constant efforts and manifestation of faith, will bring the healing to these wounds. That's the first hard lesson. The second lesson is that there are other wounds within us that come from different ways. I need not go into examples. It can be something that we've inflicted upon us by another, the force of a circumstance, things that happen beyond our control. Who knows what it might be, but there are significant and deep and cutting wounds that we have, that we could have. Emotional, psychological, spiritual. There are other wounds which admit of no healing except in knowing Christ endured them before us. Thinking that Christ is God. Those are the two lessons. There are wounds which can be healed, but only by time, and our own faith and confidence and perseverance. And there are others which admit of no healing in this life, except in knowing Christ endured them before us, and that I established and have a connection with Christ, especially on account of that. Those are two very hard lessons, which in our modern fix-it, gotta-have-it-now, gotta-have-it-fast world, those are inadmissible lessons. In the face of all human tragedy and all evil, of anything we could do or have to endure, notice Christ will speak with only one person at this trial. And he will say only one thing. After all is said and done, Christ has only one thing to say. Christ only speaks to Caiaphas. And this only happens when Caiaphas asks the question on his authority as high priest. And because Christ always respected the authority, he's going to answer the question that gets posed to him. And Christ will answer that question with the full knowledge that his answer will be completely ripped apart again. But he answers it in some public and pompous display of authority. Caiaphas will stand up because he sees the trial getting to nowhere. By the, by the living God, 
he asked, I adjure you, are you the Son of God? And Christ simply says, you have said it, I am. And the place goes hog wild. Caiaphas rips his garments in half, spits in our Lord's face and says, I, he's blasphemed and gets everyone riled up. He deserves death. The true answer. There's something about evil that good must endure if evil is to be overcome. At the same time, there is something about good that evil cannot tolerate because it knows it is good. Christ, in this mock trial, makes this evidently clear. Now, why this happens is a mystery. Once again, we come back to that. But the Word incarnate, God himself, standing there in the flesh... But with that, with that condition, we have far greater clarity about this than if God never became man. There was absolutely no answer Jesus Christ could give anyone in that chamber that they would have been satisfied with. Nothing. No more than could be given to an atheist or anyone else who has made up their mind they will not give the evidence a fair look. There's nothing for Christ that he could have said. But God's all-powerful. Well, we got free wills. God's not going to force us to love him. But he essentially lets them all incriminate themselves. By standing there silently, our Lord foreshadows all the arguments leveled against God on account of the presence of evil. That's what Christ is enduring. All the arguments that will be leveled against God for the rest of history until the end of the world on account of the presence of evil. Christ is enduring that right there. And notice, by the way, how they get nervous when he's hanging on the cross wanting him to get down. Come down from the cross will believe. Because now they're not so sure anymore. And the same thing's going to happen. And he still gives the same answer. I am the Son of God. And he gives the only solution. The cross. Because that is where the trial would send him to, as unjust as it was, that was the end of it. Because that is the answer. Courtesy of sinful humanity, who he came to redeem. On the cross. God wins. That is the role of the Catholic. Bearing witness to the existence of God, in spite of evil, requires the same commitment Christ had. Commitment to the cross in spite of perhaps the wounds and deep ones that we may bear in our hearts and our souls, do we find the resolution up there in the man who hangs on it? Self-denial, 
Love of God above all else. This is the lessons of the cross. None of God's explanations of evil, or lack of explanations, we want to say that, are satisfactory without the cross. There's no good answer from God except the cross and the man, and the man who hangs on it, who claimed to be God and who proved to be God. An answer is given. But that answer only gives us relief if we are willing to listen to it. But the cross is such that it, it, that it may and will require us to put aside the relief the world tempts us with and tries to drown out, tries to drown out any answer God may have. It does not mean that we, once again, don't use the things of the world to help us. But if we try to find the solution in those things, we're in for a great big disappointment. The cross brings the mystery of ourselves in touch with the mystery of God. Remember, it's the worst humanity has to offer, colliding with the best God has to offer at full speed. And no one was wearing seatbelts, by the way. It addresses one needs, our need for redemption before it offers an explanation for all the evil in the world. And that's the key. It makes us look to ourselves first and our own true needs, as made in the image and likeness of God, as made for eternity, before it's ready to answer and give answers for all the other mysteries we have to deal with. Such requires that we admit our need for the cross and for Christ. The cross, dear ladies, is hardly a, a dodge of a difficult question then. It actually provides genuine relief, not pseudo-relief as an atheist who would claim, who tries to say they don't need to look at the question because they don't believe in God. How afraid of the cross they are. And unfortunately, how afraid of the cross we are. But we believe. The cross is not a dodge of a difficult question. But rather, it's a direct answer to a difficult question. But it's an answer that can be accepted only if we dare consider the wisdom of what gets taught from it.